Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. There is actually a competitive agent, although it is not FDA approved, more and more literature is coming out. Ischemic stroke is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States, and thrombolytics are a mainstay of therapy. Historically, Altaplace has been a first-line agent, and now we are learning more about other treatment options that offer a choice to pharmacists and other clinicians in this arena. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Joining me today to walk through the therapeutic controversy is Dr. Philippe Mettler. He's a Pharmacy Executive Director at Vizient and an expert in emergency medicine. Welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me. Phil, let's set the stage. Tell me the history of Altaplace's use for stroke. How did we get here? Ischemic stroke effectively is caused by a clot that forms in the artery in the brain, and that leads to uh, loss of oxygen delivery to the brain and ultimately then tissue death and injury. Before we had drugs like Altaplace, we really only had supportive care. There was no real way to get rid of that clot ultimately. With the inception of Altaplace and the history that we had, particularly in ST elevation MI, Altaplace is a clot buster, we realized that there's likely an opportunity to move into the brain and use Altaplace as a clot buster for the clots in the brain as well. What about the early trials with Altaplace in the treatment of stroke? Well, the early trials with Altaplace and ischemic stroke are not without their controversies. There were actually three landmark trials, the ECAS-1 trial, the ECAS-2 trial, and the NINDS trial. Both the ECAS-1 and 2 trial were looking at accepting patients with an onset of symptoms uh, beyond three hours. And in those studies, although they did show a benefit in outcomes at 90 days, they did not show a decrease in symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. They actually had a higher incidence of head bleeds, and that higher incidence of head bleeds outweighed the benefit that you got from the ECAS-1 and 2 trials. It was really with the NINDS trial that we showed both a benefit at 90 days with Altaplace without a overbearing incidence of head bleeds. How have advancements in imaging and other clinical arenas changed things? There's been a number of advances since the original NINDS trial of 1995, not only within imaging, but also in overall care of patients. The imaging adds an added layer that allowed us to do studies well beyond and much more specific uh, relative to what we were doing in, say, 1995 or even in 2008 when we looked at extending our interval from three hours to four and a half hours. Imaging now, where we can do diffusion-weighted MRIs or perfusion CTs, we can actually look at the brain and effectively tell you where the stroke is, what artery the ischemia is coming from, how bad or how large of an area is that stroke, and whether or not there's tissue that's even salvageable within the area. So we can really fine-tune and define this patient will really benefit from using a drug like Altaplace, where they also won't necessarily have a much higher risk of bleed because there's so much dead tissue in the area. So what are some of the difficulties with Altaplace administration? 
With Alteplase, it really is an issue of practicality. The drug is presented to you in, in a 100 ml vial. The dosing is a milligram per kilogram dosing. So it's based on weight. And not only is it based on weight, but there's a percentage that you give as a bolus and then a percentage that you give as an infusion. And so when you consider that there's the step of making sure I have the right weight in a patient who's likely not able to talk to me, likely not able to stand on a scale, and then I have to take that weight-based dose and break it out into a bolus and infusion, and then I have to make sure I give my bolus, stay present to start the infusion. You can see how there's a number of steps along that process that increase risk for errors in administration. Yeah, definitely challenging. What else can go wrong in that situation? Well, a number of things can go wrong beyond just the clinical component. For instance, head bleeds would be a significant risk. But what can go wrong from a practical perspective also is the drug comes in a 100 ml vial. I'm going to be taking a certain amount of that drug out because no matter what, I would never use 100 mls or 100 milligrams. My maximum dose would be 90 milligrams. When I put it onto my uh, infusion line, I'm going to let that drug run. Towards the end of the infusion, there's going to be air in the line because I'll have no more drug left, and that will stop the pump from running. When the pump stops running because there's air in the line and it alarms, it's important to note that there's still about 10 mLs or 10 milligrams of drug in that line that still hasn't been given to the patient. And if you think, if my maximum dose that I could ever give somebody is 90 milligrams, and I still have 10 mLs or 10 milligrams that I haven't given them, I am effectively eliminating 11% of that dose from that patient. I'm underdosing the patient, and that could have significant consequences. So are there other options besides Alteplase then? Well, funny you mentioned that there is actually a competitive agent, although it is not FDA approved, more and more literature is coming out. And that medication is called tenecteplase. And that would be an exciting potential alternative to alteplase. And the data for tenecteplase? Tenecteplase actually has been studied against alteplase in five randomized controlled trials. One of the key issues or flaws with those trials, though, is that they didn't necessarily all follow the same criteria or use the same patient population or have the same timing. And some of the earlier trials which really kind of are more aligned with the original NINDS trial, were actually pretty small, only included about 100 patients each. When looking at tenecteplase to alteplase, the studies are variant in a few different ways in their dosing, whether it's a 0.25 milligram per kilogram or a 0.4 milligram per kilogram of tenecteplase. It's also variant on the timing. Are we looking at within four and a half hours or are we already going into, say, six hours or even further. Despite a number of these variances that we see in the trials uh, doing direct comparison of those five trials, each of those trials do show that tenecteplase seems to be at least as good as, if not better than alteplase in some circumstances, without having an increased risk of bad outcomes, specifically speaking about symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Why would you choose one over the other? I guess there's two ways to look at why I would choose one drug over the other. From a practical perspective, the use of tenecteplase is much more practical. It involves getting a weight, which I would have to do with alteplase. But after that, I draw the medication up and I give a bolus over five to 10 seconds, and then I'm done. 
So from a practical perspective, compared to Alteplase, which takes multiple steps with a bolus and an infusion and making sure I get rid of all the remaining drug in my line and whatnot, it's a lot easier. From an evidence perspective, if we were to say, do all patients fit the same criteria that I could give Alteplase? That's a little bit more complicated to answer at this point because the studies are pretty broad in what they're assessing. And particularly with the more recent tenecteplase trials, they do use more advanced imaging data to determine who is the best patient to assess to be giving tenecteplase. So how do these medications pan out in terms of outcomes? Well, from an outcomes perspective, I think it is important to start with Alteplase and looking at that original landmark trial, the NINDS trial, whereas the outcome as defined from a positive outcome perspective, if we use the modified Rankin score, the modified Rankin score is a six-point scale where zero to one effectively means you are fully healed. You're capable of going back home and having a job and everything else that you did before. And as I go up the scale from there, two, three, four, my outcomes, my morbidities, long-term adverse effects are worse, up to five, where five is death. If we take into consideration the NINDS trial, the modified Rankin score, the positive outcome of zero to one, placebo versus Alteplase was only a 13% difference. It was actually relatively small. So I think it's important to take into consideration we're really only talking about small numbers. When looking at tenecteplase, we can't compare tenecteplase to placebo. So when we compare tenecteplase to Alteplase, we find actually that the outcomes are pretty similar. And they are also similar to what you would have seen in the NINDS trial. In some of these trials, we do find slightly better outcomes with tenecteplase. Some of the issues, though, that we're facing is we are being very highly selective with our patients, and also some of the studies have variable doses where we're using either 0.25 milligrams per kilogram with tenecteplase or even 0.4 milligrams per kilogram with tenecteplase. From a safety perspective, it looks like, though, that tenecteplase consistently is showing that it is equivalently as safe or similarly as safe as alteplase when it comes to head bleeds, the incidence of head bleeds regardless of how we're looking at these patients across these studies. What does an organization need to think about when converting to tenecteplase for stroke treatment? Some organizations are going to focus on FDA indication. And at this point, alteplase is the only FDA-indicated thrombolytic drug for ischemic stroke. If that is the case, that's what they're going to go with. If you look at it from the perspective of the evidence as well as the practical aspects, uh, and even costs, that might also push you in one direction or another. With Nectoplace, at this point, the evidence is highly suggestive that it will be at least as effective as Alteplase at the 0.25 milligrams per kilogram dose. So knowing what you know, how would you design a trial to answer this question once and for all? I feel like I would want to go back to the fundamentals The fundamentals being that original trial, the NINDS trial, looking at patients who have a constitution of symptoms that look like ischemic stroke and had a CAT scan that was a non-contrast CAT scan that showed I didn't have a bleed. So I wasn't being highly selective and specific in my patients, and I wasn't using all of these various doses and whatnot. I was just going back to the fundamentals. And if I had a large enough population in that fundamental trial, I think that would clearly define tenecteplase as 
at minimum similar and ultimately ideally you'd have an equivalency trial and if you had that equivalency trial along with all of the other trials that we've had so far where we're much more selective on our patients i think it would be enough to say tenecteplase is at least as good as altaplase from a efficacy and safety standpoint where do you see this going in the future I wouldn't be surprised in the next three to five years if tenecteplase actually gets FDA approval. I'm not sure what the intent of the manufacturer is, if that is what they're looking to do. I think it would be a great service, ultimately, to have a drug that has FDA approval to make everybody feel comfortable uh, with its use, considering how much more practical it is to use tenecteplase over altaplase. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights. My pleasure. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.